And then month of October, uh, Dan Clark uh, is uh, going to be teaching in October and then Earl in November. Let's go back to our study on the church in Acts chapter number two. All right, we spent some time uh, the last couple of weeks uh, dealing with the, the distinction of the church. And it is uh, something that is misunderstood in our culture today. A lot of historical revisionism. And we know what happens just in history in general. But lies, revisions, totally non-factual headlines about Christianity, about the influence of the church. Uh, I get upset sometimes when I hear some of the things that are said, and sometimes it is actual, legitimate uh, issues in the church because people are sinners, and so there are times where the church has brought reproach upon the name of Christ because of sin, because we're sinners, and it's almost as if the church is the cause of all the evil in the world. That's the impression that we get sometimes through education, through the mass media. There's a target sometimes upon the church, and we know that the world is going to hate us because the world hates Christ, because Christ exposes our sin and our condition, and he is the only way. And we've been dealing with that in our study through the book of John on Sunday mornings. So it's not completely shocking to us. At the same time, it is a an issue that we have to address. And as believers, we need to be educated biblically about how God grows his church and about what the church really is all about and what is our purpose and what is God's plan for the church. And, of course, we only have this one uh, last uh, lesson today before we, we take a break, and then we'll uh, come back in December and probably look at some, uh, some Christmas uh, themes uh, but maybe eventually we can come back again and we'll look some more uh, possibly at church history and some of the, uh, the more uh, detailed aspects of the church and its influence upon the world through time. But let's continue. Whoops, there's my clicker. But let's continue to uh, look at this study. And in Acts chapter number 2 and uh, going down uh, to verse 41, after Peter preached at the day of Pentecost and they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And so we have spent the last couple of weeks looking in great detail at these two verses and seeing the church growth pattern established very early on in the book of Acts, a saved church membership, obviously followed by believer's baptism, Doctrine, in other words, the emphasis on the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word. And we know that the apostles were instrumental in the first century as God's chosen people. And they had signs and wonders, gifts that God had given them. We no longer have the apostolic gift functioning today. And the prophetic gift, the gift of prophecy, is wrapped up in the pastor-teacher but the pastor-teacher today does not have predictive gifts. Uh, the pastor-teacher is not able to predict the future. He's not receiving new divine revelation. He's proclaiming 
the truth of the Word of God that's been already revealed and obviously uh, written and inspired, God-breathed in the 66 books of the Bible. So we see the emphasis in church growth upon saved church membership and doctrine, teaching, the preaching of God's Word, and then fellowship, being together, coming together. And the church, the early church, met every day. And I realize with our busy schedules and with time constraints, that's not possible. But in the early days of the church, it was an everyday thing. They met every day. Uh, there are churches now that uh, barely meet one time a week. And uh, it's, 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 it's interesting how it, it seems we have a culture today that is more and more biblically illiterate. And the church says, well, we, didn't, we need less church. We need to come together less often. But God's tool, God's instrument, God's choosing and using his people and the proclamation of his word, that includes evangelism, sharing the gospel, but the coming together of the local body. And I know that the, the, the book of Hebrews, when we read that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, I realize that did not say how many times per week we're to come together. I realize that, and I don't want to be legalistic in saying, you know, four or three or whatever, but I do think that the pattern in the, in the early days of the church was they met every day. So it's important for us to have regularly scheduled services, multiple opportunities for our church to come together, including a prayer meeting, because we know the importance of prayer, as we see number five, and then, of course, the ordinances, communion, Lord's table, and then, and then baptism, which would actually fall under number one, saved and then baptized. This is the church growth pattern. But it seems as our culture has gotten further and further away from God, the church says, yeah, we don't need to meet as much. We don't need to come together as much. Um, we can divide up into geographical or interest or topical groups, and we don't have to come together as much. We, 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 can, get our, we can get our Bible teaching online. We can get our Bible training from YouTube. Whatever, you know. And so what happens is the church just becomes more and more immersed in the world, and the world is affecting the church more and more, and the church begins to look more and more like the world and becomes more entertainment-oriented and more social gospel-oriented, and the church loses its distinction, and we get away from the principles that are clearly revealed in the book of Acts for how God grew his church. And Paul didn't get persecuted in one town and say, hmm, I need to change my marketing strategy. That didn't work over in Thessalonica. That didn't work in Ephesus. Did he say, oh, you know, I need to rethink this thing. This preaching stuff just isn't working. I preached over there and it got me stoned. I preached over there, it got me in prison. I need to rethink this. Let me borrow from the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek culture. Let me borrow from the Roman culture. Uh, let me find some popular Roman or Greek philosopher or entertainer. And let me, let me have a special meeting and let, let's get the pop music of the Roman culture and the pop music of the Greek culture. And let's, you know, kind of do a Mars Hill concert and sell some tickets. And then maybe we can get enough people together and then we can give them the hard stuff of the gospel. You know, that stuff about sin. But at, only after they're really comfortable in all of their, their ways. Is that how Paul did it? Did he go to Ephesus and say, let me see, how can I synchronize the worship of the goddess of uh, the goddess Diana with biblical Christianity. Is that, is that what Paul's church growth 
strategy was? To borrow from the paganism, to borrow from the Greek mythology? No way. He went from place to place, from town to town, city to city, and he just kept preaching the gospel. And then he would go into the towns and he would share the gospel. He would get into dialogue. He would go into the synagogues. That was the typical place they would start was in the synagogue. And the synagogue worship would allow for people to stand and to, to speak. And so we see Christ doing it. We see the Apostle Paul. They just would stand up in the synagogue and start preaching. And they would preach Christ in the Jewish synagogue that was rejecting Christ. And so we see this pattern over and over and over. And we'll go a little further with this in a few minutes here. Now, are these good activities? We talked about this last week. Sure. Uh, these are good activities. Uh, there are a lot of good things involved in these activities, but these do not replace the church. So family devotions, good thing to do. should have those on a regular basis. Meeting with God in the woods. Nothing wrong with having a prayer trail. Nothing wrong with having a, a devotional time out in the woods. Independent Bible study. Bible studies are good. Uh, I don't believe that the Lord's table or baptism is for a private setting. Uh, I know some preachers disagree with me. Uh, I haven't typically, in my ministry, taken a little basket of wafers and juice to a hospital or to a uh, retirement home or something. I haven't, I haven't typically done that. Uh, I think that the primary place of the church ordinances is in a public corporate setting within the church. Um, but again, is that a church activity? Yes, but does that make it the church? Um, let's go on. A small group without pastoral authority or member accountability, that could actually be very dangerous. Uh, in a lot of cases, uh, that can breed uh, the wrong kind of, uh, of teaching and uh, even be the cause of some, some false uh, teaching being disseminated. Uh, not always, of course, but can we have s small group Bible studies? Of course. Uh, we had one Wednesday or Monday night on the Purdue campus. Had a great time uh, and, and dove into uh, Book of First John, and we had some some great interaction. Uh, it was it was it was a great time. But that was a church activity, and one of the things I love about Cross Impact that we're we're trying to get recognized as a student organization. One of the things I love about Cross Impact is it's local church focused. Uh, that that ministry. Uh, that has uh, national has chapters nationally around uh, various colleges uh, around the nation. Cross Impact is a church, local church oriented, local church focused, and it's even in the the bylaws in the in the Constitution. And uh, so, understanding the local church emphasis, even for parachurch ministries, the importance of a parachurch ministry being under the local church. A little side note, as I consider missionaries to come and present their ministry here, I want them to be under a mission organization that recognizes the authority of the local church. I find that to be very important. I struggle with a, I know that there are some good missionaries out there who are on a, kind of on their own, but I believe that a, a missionary needs to be under the local church authority ascending church, and then that mission organization needs to be under the local church authority. So there are mission organizations that I look for when a missionary considers or they reach out to me. One of the first things I do is I go, what is, the, what is their mission organization? What is their sending church? And I look for a local church emphasis. Um, we can get a maverick mentality. We can get a rogue mentality, even in Christianity, and get out from underneath 
uh, the local church. And we see clearly in the book of Acts, missions came out of where? The local church. The laying on of the hands, the sending out Paul Barnabas, Paul Silas, the other missions all came out of the local church. And then, of course, we've dealt with the online issue a lot over the last two and a half, three years with online church. And some churches have ceased to exist because they were no different than the secular social groups. They discovered over COVID that their Zoom meetings were really no different than getting together for some social activity. And so some churches, they just folded. And then we've already given the statistic in here about 30% of church attenders, the average 30% of church attenders prior to COVID have never returned to church. That's still the prevailing statistic that I've heard. So we see uh, the, the church has been affected. These are, these are good activities, but they don't replace the church. So church activity without community is not church. And then last week, we looked at these uh, with, with some detail. And we see that the distinctiveness of Christianity uh, flows out of the doctrine, flows out of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So we see that Christianity separated itself from all other religions. We know that the Jews, the, Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel. There are, there are soteriological aspects that affect both groups, okay? But the church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. So did God use the Jews to take the gospel to the world? Of course he did. But then, of course, after the crucifixion of Christ and the Gentile uh, church, the grafting in and eventually the grafting of of Israel back in uh, to the tree, the branch. Uh, we know that is, is future. And I don't want to get into a whole <laughs> theology of Israel and the church, but understanding that Christianity is distinct from every other worldwide religion, every other religion that's out there. And Christianity is primarily a relationship. It has religious aspects, but it is primarily a relationship, obviously through Jesus Christ. So one distinction is monotheistic. So a lot of false religions, even if they claim to have one God, Islam claims to have one God, Allah. True? But he's obviously a false God, and he obviously is uh, a God of judgment, a God of wrath. There's no love. There's no really no mercy, there's no personal relationship, and you look at the religion of Islam, is not Muhammad elevated almost to a godlike status? I mean, that would be like saying Moses is on the same level of Jesus, or Abraham being on the same level of, of Jesus. You see that distinction? That's pretty obvious, right? But you, you, you follow, you see the Islamic religion and Muhammad is, is elevated into almost a deified state to the point that a newspaper over in France, I believe it was, and then who was it, Salman Rushdie, Rushdie just recently, uh, his book, he had a, uh, what is that, what is that, that word for a, a, a judgment pronounced on his head, 
Fatwa, yes, thank you. And just because he dared to say something negative about Muhammad, and there was that newspaper in France where there was that terrorist attack because they had caricatures of Muhammad. He's almost elevated to a deified state. Well, we don't do that with Abraham. We don't do that with Moses. We don't do that with Isaiah or any of the great prophets. So there's distinctions, even in a monotheistic religion. But, of course, we go to a lot of the false religions, and there's a plethora of gods. There's synchronism. I remember reading a testimony, a book, a biography, a Pilgrimage from Rome. And it's a great book. And it's a priest who got saved, got, got out of the Catholic religion. And he talked about how, as a priest, he could go to all different places around the world, and he could synchronize Catholicism with just about any religion. So he would go into the tribes. He got sent to a tribe out in one of the Pacific Islands, if I remember right. And he was so, uh, he thought he was so special because he could take mass, he could take the Eucharist and blend it with the tribal customs and the tribal religions and they could still do mass and they could do the Eucharist and they could get the blessing of God. Even though they were pagan, reprobate, unsaved, unregenerate and did not repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. He thought he could bring Jesus to that tribal religion and synchronize it just by doing mass Eucharist. Earl? I never did. Mm -mm. Yes. I never met him. I never met him, but that's where I got the book. Was at, at college, and uh, read it, and it was it was a really good book, um, powerful testimony. Uh, but again, Christianity is scriptural. We have a book. We have a inspired, God-breathed book written down. We can take people to the Bible and show them the standard of God's word. I would imagine that most workplaces have some sort of manual for conduct or for doing business or whatever it might be. We have a divinely inspired, we have God-breathed book. We take people to the Word of God, and this is our authority for faith and practice. Historical, the Bible has historical events. It's not a historical textbook, but it is historical. We can point to events in history. In archaeology and extra-biblical records continue to validate what the Bible has already said is true. Continue to verify what the Bible already said is true. Discoveries of names and different clay pots and the Dead Sea Scrolls being one in particular. That's extremely fascinating. Dan talked a little bit about that back in the spring. All these extra-biblical records in, in the case of the manuscript evidence, over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. Uh, it's just incredible. Um, there is a historical record in the Bible that matches up because it is completely accurate. It is a record of God and his providence and his son Jesus Christ in the actual historical times in which man lives. It's not some Greek mythology of some god or goddess in some atmospheric place having their fights and their arguments and their envies and their violence and then it spills out on the earth and then somebody wrote it down because it was fascinating. No, this is a historical body of facts, but we know that this is a 
book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the living word of God, Jesus Christ being the living word of God and the written word of God, the inspired God-breathed uh, written revelation is all about Jesus Christ. But there's historical, factual events with meaning that show God's providence, that show God's redemptive plan, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Or if you want to use the answers in Genesis, if I can say it right, help me sing the song, creation, corruption, catastrophe, um, on and on it goes with the seven seas of history. And I can't, I can't sing it. I'd have to sing it to, to get all, all seven of the seas. And then relational and public. The relationship that we have with Jesus Christ sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Hinduism, you have a relationship with what? A reincarnated cow? A, re, a relationship with a fly that you can't swat because it might be somebody's sister's cousin's lost, removed uncle? <laughs> Ridiculous, right? It's the worshiping of the creation rather than the creator. And, and then public. Jesus preached in the temple. He'll even talk about that in, in, in John chapter 10 and, and even at his crucifixion when they came to arrest him. Have I not taught publicly in the temple? He, he puts it right back on them. There's a public exercise of our faith, and we're experiencing the pushback to that right now in America. We're doing what we have always done, not as probably as good as we should have. We've compromised, sadly, in a lot of ways. The world has unfortunately affected too many professing Christians. Okay, But my point is this. We're continuing to live out our faith. We've always believed that boys are boys and girls are girls, and they can't become each other. We've always believed, Christianity has always preached and taught that premarital sex is wrong, fornication, immorality is wrong, it's a sin. We've always preached and taught certain biblical values and the world comes along and then accuses us of having discriminatory, bigoted, whatever term they use. And we're saying we've exercised this faith in this way for thousands of years. And now you're coming along and saying it's extreme, it's bigoted, it's discriminatory, it's whatever. We're saying we've lived our faith out publicly from day one. And so we're going to continue to do that. We're going to obey God rather than man. So we can see the distinction even in that. We talked about Christ uh, being God, even though Muhammad is almost deified. He's not God. His life is full of sin and wickedness. And then his sayings are not in any kind of real organized in in. in Choreograph, not choreographed, um, chronological order. The Quran is just a bunch of sayings all jumbled together. Not really, yes, yeah, chaos, yeah. There's really not a, an organized um, theme and system throughout. But we, we know Jesus Christ is God. Again, liar, lunatic, or, the, or liar, lunatic, or Lord. Um, he rose from the dead. If, our, if Christ did not rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. We follow an errorless book, a divinely revealed truth. I mean, what happened to the Mormons and uh, some of the research that's been done on Mormonism and the historical error in the Book of Mormon, the 
all that, the, 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 the lies, and then you go a little deeper in the perversion, and we can go on and on, Jehovah's Witnesses and others. Followers would rather die than renounce their faith. They cared for the sick, the weak, for children, for women. Okay, all the, the values associated with that. And then we see the, the book of Acts. We see the early church. Christ ascends in chapter 1, and we are commissioned to go and to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, and we're to go out and to share the gospel. We see the prayer meeting, and then the apostles leading the church. We see Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost, and we've been in Acts 2, 41 and 42. Then the church begins to advance. Again, how does the church advance? Peter and John, Jerusalem. What happens to Peter and John as they preach in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3? They get arrested, right? They get thrown in prison. They get flogged, told to quit preaching the gospel. And Peter and John say, We're up to, we need to obey God rather than man. Acts chapter 4, persecution and power. We see the church beginning to be persecuted. And we see the power of God uh, overcoming and empowering his people, even through intense opposition, early stages of persecution. This isn't even the intense persecution that will come with um, Nero and uh, the, the, the emperors uh, after him. I forget all their names. In Acts chapter 5, we see the, the, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Isn't it interesting? Early in the church, there's an establishment of purity. There is a major consequence early on to demonstrate the necessity for the holiness and the purity of God's people in his church. Do we not see that pattern going back to when Israel entered the land of Canaan? Early, first city that they conquered, what were they told? Don't take from Jericho, right? Who disobeyed? Achan, and there was major judgment. He was given capital punishment in his house. What do we see again? First fruits. We see the emphasis on holiness and the purity of God's people. We see that pattern in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira and the necessity of purity of the church. And then we see in Acts chapter number 6, we see... Uh, deacons being called out, and then the conflict with Deacon Stephen. And I think it's interesting that the deacons are preachers in many cases. Not in, not in every case, but in, in I'm not going to get into a whole, the whole elder rule and all that kind of thing, okay? I'm, I'm a Baptist, and I'm not a Reformed Baptist. I'm an Independent Baptist, I'm not a Southern Baptist, okay? Anyway, I'm not going to get into a long tangent, but... I know there's all this talk about elder rule, and there are good men who disagree on this issue. But I find it interesting that it's the deacons who are established in Acts chapter 6, and the deacons do a lot of the preaching. So which one is the preaching elder? And which one's the ruling elder? And which one? Anyway. <laughs> and even where you have an elder board, there's still somebody who is the leader, who is the ruling and oftentimes the preaching elder, we can get into all the semantics of all that, and again, this isn't the place to argue all that, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Baptist, and I believe in the two offices of the church, pastor and deacon, 
And so, again, good, good men disagree on that, but we see the establishment of the office of the deacon in Acts chapter number 6. And they had a ministry not to lead the church in an executive board type of way, but to assist the pastor in the, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, the, the non-preaching uh, aspects uh, of, the, of the church ministry. And God's blessed us with, with good men, good deacons here, thankful for them. They've been a joy to, to serve with. But we see the deacons helping with that controversy between uh, the, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews and the widows and all that, okay? And, and then we see the conflict with Stephen. Stephen goes out and preaches, and there's persecution against him, Acts chapter number 7. So by Acts chapter number 8, you would think that with persecution starting, that they would come up with a different strategy, right? I mean, this isn't working real well. They've had Stephen stoned. We've got to come with a different method. Let's go back in Acts, Acts chapter 2 and verses 41 and 42, and let's reevaluate that. Surely there's a, a, a more convenient, less antagonistic, less confrontational way to grow God's church, right? What do we see in Acts chapter number 8? Stephen's sermon. <laughs> I mean, in martyrdom. And we see more persecution. Uh, we, we see Philip going out and preaching in Samaria. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. He's going where? Where did he go? Where did Philip go and preach? Samaria. Those people need the gospel. Don't, don't, don't we understand? They're, they're half-breeds. Remember all the prejudice of the Jews? Where's Philip going? He's going to the Samaritans, some of the most hated, one of the most hated ethnic groups, people groups. And he preaches the gospel. And then where does Philip go? In Acts chapter number 8. Where else does Philip go? Ethiopian eunuch, exactly. And where did the Ethiopian eunuch take the gospel? The heart of Africa. So why is it that David Livingston, coming years later, traveling through Africa, why is he finding vestiges of Christianity as he's traveling through Africa? How did that happen? Because the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip being called of God, led by the Lord, takes the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he goes down into the heart of Africa, and he begins to spread. And then we know uh, through uh, tradition that there were, uh, I forget which apostle it was, that also um, more than likely was sent uh, to preach the gospel, and then down into sub-Saharan Africa. They, they received the gospel even in sub-Saharan Africa because of Ethiopian eunuch, because of Philip, because of uh, the, the apostles. Now, that wasn't where the... The, the, the Greek language, Koine Greek, uh, was spoken, so they had to begin a translation of the Bible into the languages of, of Africa. I remember being in Kenya and uh, learning some of the history of Kenya and the African people. It's amazing how even the false religions and the false tribal customs many times borrowed from biblical Christianity. Now, they had twisted it, and of course, man and his sin and synchronism and ecumenicalism had distorted some of that. But it was interesting, they borrowed. Where did they get, where did they get that? Right, it goes right back to Acts chapter number 8 in, in many cases. 
All right, and then we continue. We see this church growth strategy. We continue to see the preaching of the gospel. Um, Acts 8, uh, I just I forgot to click on the slide. Sorry about that. We continue to see the preaching of the gospel. Philip's evangelizing, Samaria, Ethiopian eunuch, and then Acts 9. In Acts chapter 9, we see Paul's conversion. Think about the world-changing conversion of the Apostle Paul, from Saul to Paul. And how many uh, books of the New Testament is, is Paul said to have written? Is it 13 or 14? Something like that. Uh, there's his... Uh, fingerprint, so to speak, all over the New Testament. We see the missionary journeys. We see Paul being used by God in incredible ways. We, we see that in Philippians chapter number 3, Paul said, if anybody could get saved by their good works, it's me. I had the blood heritage. I had the religious tradition. I had the good works, and as a matter of fact, I was such a good guy, I was persecuting those Christ followers. I was making sure that they went to prison or even went to their death. As a matter of fact, whose feet were the coats of those stoning Stephen? Whose feet were they placed at? Saul. And that road to Damascus, Paul, Saul, went from Saul to Paul. He got saved. Gloriously saved, repentance of sin, remission of sins. And you talk about lighting a fire, talk about a passion for the gospel, talk about a man who was laser focused on doing the will of God and getting the gospel to the entire world. That was the Apostle Paul. Incredible. Down to his final dying days, chained to Roman soldiers, he's preaching the gospel. And he's under house arrest, and everybody that comes, they know what they're going to get. Can you imagine those Roman centurion soldiers tied, chained to Paul? Here we go again. Another visitor, he's going to probably talk about Jesus. And some of them even got saved, some of those Romans. And what, what was, as Paul, as Paul was looking ahead to where else he could go with the gospel, even into his final days, he's wanting to get into Spain. He's wanting to get into the further reaches. And then we see the gospel going from Asia Minor into Europe, into Asia, eventually all the way across, even into Southeast Asia. And we can talk about Marco Polo, and we can talk about the, the different trade routes. The gospel is going out, changing lives, saving people. It's incredible. Um, the, the, the source, the, the church growth beginning, and then continuing forward, Acts 10, 11, we see Peter's ministry to Cornelius. Who was Cornelius? Was he a Jew? Who was Cornelius in Acts chapters 10 and 11? Yeah, he was a Roman centurion, right? And remember the blanket coming down? Peter's up there on the top of the, the roof, on the rooftop, and the blanket comes down, and it's got all this non-kosher food, right? And Peter says, Lord, I don't eat that stuff. Now, this is another, another, okay, I'm going to do a little side note here. But this is another proof text for why we should eat meat as believers. Sorry, all you vegetarians. Not trying to offend anybody. But Noah got off the ark, and God said, eat the meat, right? And then Peter is told on the rooftop, eat the meat. So, again, I know some people are, are vegetarians for, for health reasons. I get it. 
but this whole vegan stuff, I don't know. Some of that stuff I, I wonder about. Okay, I just probably got myself in trouble with some people, but <laughs> God gave us meat to eat, and that blanket comes down, and Peter's like, Lord, I can't eat this stuff, and what was the illustration? Yes, I know a secondary application is the meat is good for you to eat, but the primary application is the gospel's for the Gentiles too. Even the pagan Romans, and there's Cornelius, who's right now responding to creation and responding to the conscience and responding to the consciousness of his soul. And he needs the gospel. And Peter, you need to go give him the gospel. And Peter does, and then it stirs up controversy, right? I mean, that's what the church, that's what happens sometimes in the church, right? We nitpick each other. We fight over the stupidest things. So-and-so this, so-and-so that. They don't agree with me on every single little thing down to the very jot and tittle of every T and every I. And they offended me six years ago, and I'll never forgive them, even though I believe in Ephesians 4.32 and can quote it. So what happens? What happens? Peter, what are you doing with Cornelius? Don't you know he's a bad man? He's a Gentile. <laughs> right? And that controversy continues, doesn't it? So when we get to Acts chapter 12... And there's a little bit of a pause before we get to the resolution of this controversy. Peter and James in prison. Notice Peter is allowed to escape, but in the providence of God, James is, is murdered. Same God, holy God, two different results. I, I can't explain that. I can't fully understand that. God said to James, your work is done. God said to Peter, I have more work for you to do. I, you know, I, I can't fully explain that in the providence of God, but that's what happens. In Hebrews 11, some were sawn asunder. Some were allowed to live the, into the final days of their uh, organic biological lifespan. Um, we, we have to fulfill the purpose, the plan, the calling that God has given us down to the very last breath. And uh, we, we see uh, Peter and James... Uh, preaching the gospel, Paul, Silas, John, Mark. We see the coming out of uh, the calling uh, to the mission field from the church in Antioch. And then we see Acts, Acts 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas. And then we get to Acts 15, Jerusalem Council. Here's where that controversy comes in. And I love how the church handles it. The evidence is laid out. And then what do they do? What do they appeal to? Tradition? What if they appeal to tradition? What if they're... What if they're, well, we've done this for 50 years. Don't you know so-and-so has taught this, so-and-so has done this? Don't you know I donated that? Right? What do we do? Sadly, sometimes we get so carnal that we get bent out of shape. And what if they had appealed to tradition? What would have been the result of Acts 15? Go ahead. What's that? Not preaching to the Gentiles. Souls would have gone to hell because the church was so bent on tradition. We don't give the Gentiles the gospel. What is Peter doing hanging out with Cornelius? If they had gone by just tradition, Earl, you were going to say something? Yeah. Yeah, now you're talking, exactly, now you're talking about a compromise 
synchronizing the keeping of the law, which was actually a good thing in pointing people to Christ, and now it then becomes the takeover and synchronizes and becomes a works-based religion. And then right there in Acts 15, the gospel can be compromised. But instead, the church, the council there, James, what do they do? They declare, they go to Scripture. They go to God's revelation, and they find the answer in God's word, in God's revelation. And they find the answer, and they say the gospel goes to the Gentiles as well. And we need to be part of that. We need to be taking the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth, just like Jesus called us to. And we see a missions movement beginning. We see the gospel going forth. We see the church united in the spread of the gospel. We see Paul taking the gospel all around the known world. And then in Acts 21, Paul's arrested. And then Acts Acts chapters 22 through 28, we see Paul's trials and journey to Rome. Now, we're running out of time here, but has anybody had the thought, uh, maybe it's just me, but why, why did God give us so much about Paul's journey to Rome and his trials in the end of Paul's life? Has anybody ever had that question come to mind? Why did God give us so much about, so much detail? I don't believe that the shipwreck is just an analogy of the Christian life. I know some preachers, that's the way they preach, Acts 22 through 28. The shipwreck is just an analogy of the Christian life. And there can be some applications along that line. I get that. But that's not really what Acts 22 through 28 is all about. It's a big story of a shipwreck so that we can have an analogy for Christian living. Why why would God have given us so much about the details of that journey to Rome and the shipwreck? I'm not saying I know all the answers. I'm just curious. What what would be? Yes, David. Great point. We see the initial proclamation of the gospel going forth and 3,000 souls being saved, but there's also in the midst of hardship and difficulty, there was an island where there were some tribal people who needed the gospel, and it took a shipwreck to get that gospel to those people. Great point. So sometimes there's a methodic or a slowness in, in hostility toward the gospel, yet the gospel still goes forth. Great point. Yes, Earl. <laughs> Essentially, I'm going to probably take the position along the lines of suffering is necessary in the proclamation of the gospel. So much time is spent because, yes, there are groups of people along the way who needed the gospel. The sailors on the ship, those different tribes on those islands. Okay, but there is suffering in sharing the gospel, yet God is faithful even in our suffering. We can expect suffering, we can expect opposition, but we still need to be faithful. And I think that's part of, uh, of why uh, God gave us so much detail of that 
shipwreck. And then, of course, where did Paul end up? Rome. And again, this is just a little bit of a side note, but look at Catholicism and Roman Catholicism. And, and look at the, the gospel Paul took to Rome, and it contradicted that. AD 313, Constantinople, Constantine, and making, removing the persecution of the church, and then sadly the church became compromised. But we see the gospel reaching Rome and the true church uh, being there. And uh, I think that is, is interesting as well, uh, kind of on a side note. And then we come to just a, a map um, that brings us uh, to a close. Uh, there was one other chart I was going to show. I think I have just enough time to do that. But we see, look at where the gospel went. I mean, we, 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 we see all the way over in the boot of Italy. We see Rome. And then we know from there, the gospel continued to go forth into Europe, Eastern and Western Europe. And then eventually through the trade routes over into Asia, Southeast Asia. But we see the Roman world with all the roads and the transportation and all the methods of uh, getting uh, goods to and from different parts of the world, even military uh, engagements and travel, the gospel followed those routes. And so we see the gospel going forth uh, throughout the world. And what, what does then our response, what is, what is our response when we see something like this? What should our response be? It's one of the reasons we're having missions conference next week. Because we have to have a burden for the lost, both here and around the world. We, we know... As we finish up here, we know that there were issues in the church. Eventually, Lord willing, I'll preach a series through the seven churches of Revelation. But God was using these churches. They had their faults. They had their, <laughs> their, their failures. But they also had their, their blessings and their, their, their good traits. And uh, we see that God, in the book of Revelation, the last book, we see in those two chapters there, we see God taking his church and using his church. And then we see, even in the book of Revelation, we see the church and the 24 elders representing the church, I believe representing the church, the throne of Christ. We see God has the church. We're part of that church. The universal church hasn't met. We're a local church assembly. God has called us here. And God has called us to work together, to be together. And sometimes we have to rub the, the, the rough edges off and provoke one of love and good works and faith for all the wounds of a friend. But we have to exercise our gifts and love toward one another for the building up of the body of Christ to go to a lost and dying world and to reach them for Christ. And so I hope this has been a help to us. I know there's a lot more, and Lord willing, we'll maybe do a study in church history and get into some more details of that. But uh, we'll uh, be together next week. And uh, Nick Stoll, Lord willing, be here to teach the class as we start up Missions Conference. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for your word and these truths and these events uh, that show us, that reveal to us uh, your uh, pattern for the growth of your church 